Few people are aware of uh, the role of President Carter as a young naval officer in Northern Ontario. And he just loves talking about that. <laughs> so. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the smartest guy in the world, Chris Sands at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Nice to see you. So we have a fun episode of Canusa Street today. We are going to talk to a leading scholar, thinker, writer on Canada-U.S. relations, but particularly from the point of view of presidents and prime ministers. Uh, and it's the second part of a podcast that we started with uh, Scott Reed, our friend, who we collaborated on, on a book with called With Faith and Goodwill. So we'll get into that a little bit. But Chris, first and foremost, let me ask you to properly introduce our esteemed guest. Absolutely. Well, Arthur Milnes is well known to many people. He's uh, He served as a speechwriter to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and was the Right Honorable Brian Mulroney's memoirs assistant. He's also been around other prime ministers. In fact, he was a co-editor of Politics of Purpose, the 40th anniversary edition, which is a collection of the Right Honorable John Turner's speeches, another prime minister, published in 2008 by McGill Queen's University Press. And he is one of the all-star uh, editors of With Faith and Goodwill, second edition, which is looking, which looks at some of the, the really great thoughts by presidents and prime ministers on this important bilateral relationship, which he worked on with you, Scotty, and with uh, Scott Reed. So with that, welcome, Art. It's great to have you here. Well, uh, I, I'm quite honored, and I have to say, Chris, listening to that introduction, immediately Lyndon Johnson popped into my head, because Lyndon got a great introduction like that once, and he went up to the podium and he said, Mr. Chairman, thank you for that introduction. My father would have greatly enjoyed it, but my mother, she would have believed it. So, so thanks there, Chris. You know, the other thing about you, Art, uh, I can say is you're a favorite son of Kingston, Ontario. So maybe let's start off. Tell us, uh, tell us where you're sitting right now and uh, notable things about that and, and maybe, maybe some things that have happened in your yard over the years that might be relevant to presidents and prime ministers. Why don't you tell us a little story about where you are today? Well, uh, when I was a Queen student in the 1980s, I worked at the University Archives, and it was uh, one of the important anniversaries, the 50th anniversary of Franklin Roosevelt coming to Kingston in 1938. So I think that's where some of the seeds were planted in my interest in uh, prime ministers and U.S. presidents. But in my yard, I'm quite... Uh, privileged and honored that over the years, uh, seven prime ministers have uh, dropped by my house and they plant trees and uh, my wife and I proudly uh, plaque them. But probably the centerpiece of my garden is the uh, trees that uh, President Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind each planted when they stayed over at our house uh, about 10 years ago here in Kingston. So I'm a pretty lucky guy. So you are so lucky and we're lucky uh, to have you, Art, as a friend and a scholar. Um, Chris, maybe I'll just start off with a question and then turn it over to you, um, but a question about the book. So Art, when we were collaborating on this book, which started out as a, as a project um, for Canada's sesquicentennial, and then we went into a second edition more recently, you know, 
you had some wonderful stories. We couldn't include all of them, but you had some wonderful stories. Um, and, and I wonder if maybe we could start with your, and you can tell us any stories you want. Okay. So just jump in, but you mentioned the, the, uh, tree in your yard planted by president Carter. I know you're a huge devotee. I know you're friends personally with them. I know you've traveled back and forth to planes. What started your fascination with and friendship with the Carters, if I might ask? Where does where are the roots and and what what do you think his presidency means in terms of Canada U.S. relations? Well, <clears throat> when I was growing up, my uh, mother didn't talk politics very much, and so I was probably twelve or thirteen when President Carter was still in the White House. But my mother broke her rule, and she always spoke with the greatest of respect and admiration for uh, both uh, Jimmy Carter, the president, and Mrs. Carter. And my mom was particularly impacted by Mrs. Carter's work on mental health, which she had started in the 60s, early 60s in rural Georgia. And my both my parents felt, uh, in terms of this is the height of the Cold War, and both felt very safe um, with President Carter's finger on the Western deterrent button. And one of the great honors of my life was to be sitting in my own basement with President Carter and Mrs. Carter having a glass of wine. And I told him that story and uh, about what my parents had said. And it meant a lot to me to be able to tell him that. And Mrs. Carter, things were silent for a minute. And Mrs. Carter looked at me and she said, Arthur, I felt the same way too. <laughs> so in many ways to my parents, Jimmy Carter was the perfect American president. Um, he wasn't loud. He wasn't um, lecturing. He, he, he also summed up very much my parents' views of human rights and uh, uh, peace, obviously, health, um, and uh, his uh, incredible advancements in terms of particularly where he came from uh, in, in American civil rights. And um, I guess I picked that up. And uh, about 25 years ago, I was reading the New York Times one Sunday. And the article talked about uh, President Carter teaching Sunday school in Plains, Georgia. And uh, every Sunday and that he would talk, you know, meet personally with all the people who came to his church service. So about 40 minutes later, I had a flight to Atlanta. And uh, down I went and I drove off to Plains to my rental car and I I went to a church and afterwards got to meet my hero. And uh, after that, uh, I wrote to him and asked if I could uh, do an interview with him just on his relations with the two Canadian prime ministers that he uh, had dealt with, uh, Joe Clark uh, and uh, Pierre Trudeau. And that started a practice where once a year I would go down to Plains and interview him. And I never, um, never spoke to him about issues of current American politics. I always stuck to uh, um, Canadian uh, issues and uh, like bilateral issues uh, between Canada and the United States uh, under uh, his leadership. And I can't speak for him, but I think he appreciated that uh, in terms of, you know, a guy like Jimmy Carter has given, you know, 40,000 interviews in his life. And I guess they get pretty predictable after a while. And uh, he helps, holds up Canada uh, as well as quite a beacon uh, or some of his beliefs like um, uh, <clears throat> universal medical care, 
Uh, and um, the other thing that few people, uh, and I know, Scotty, you and I have talked about it, few people are aware of uh, the role of President Carter as a young naval officer in Northern Ontario. And in 1953, he was working on the second U.S. Uh, nuclear submarine, the Seawolf, uh, on the reactor in Schenectady, New York. And the Canadian um, uh, nuclear reactor at Chalk River overheated. And Jimmy Carter, a lieutenant, was put in charge of the American crew who helped the Canadians um, uh, repair, uh, repair the reactor. And he just loves talking about that. <laughs> so that's a great story, Art. I, I was going to ask you if you're willing to share the insight. You've been a speechwriter. And when I went through both editions of With Faith and Goodwill, it's something I've always wondered about. So someone writes the words, the president or the prime minister delivers the words, you know, do they become really the the thoughts or can we really associate them with the speaker or are they really the speechwriter's genius and you have a, a famous figure who does his job by reading them well? I mean, sort of the Ronald Reagan, the great actor can deliver the line. So what's the magic between the speechwriter and and the speaker? And how do we understand these words that are recorded in history as belonging to the leader in terms of their own thoughts and how they feel about it? What's the, what, how do those two things come together? What an interesting question. I rarely ask that. Um, with the the person I worked with the most, which would be uh, the Right Honorable Stephen Harper, um, I saw myself with him more as a, I don't like the term speech writer, to be honest, um, until you put your name on a ballot. Um, you know, um, I saw my role with him more as a speech prompter, but more importantly, a researcher. And uh, by the time somebody becomes, <clears throat> excuse me, president of the United States or prime minister of Canada, they've been delivering speeches many times for decades. And they have their styles. Um, they uh, know which audiences to play. And uh, what they need uh, is research. And my specialty is the historical reference. And... Um, like uh, that's why Scotty and myself and Scott um, uh, had so much fun working together with these knowledge the three of us had in different areas, like Scotty's work with the Clinton administration, or I might know something about, uh, you know, some unknown part of the Carter presidency. And uh, yeah, so. Uh, well, well, Art, let's be honest. You know everything about all the administrations. I knew very little. <laughs> And my contribution to the book was I thought we needed pictures. You and Scott had the great ideas, and uh, and I thought, you know, we need to find some pictures. But you, help, you helped a lot with the curation of the photos, I must say. Well, uh, if I'm allowed to say to the listeners, Scotty's downplaying herself, okay? So I'm going to speak on her behalf, whether she likes it or not. Uh, no problem. We can edit this out. Well, <laughs> Scotty's dream uh, was to... Uh, replicate Canada's 1976 bicentennial gift to the United States, a beautiful coffee table book uh, between friends. And that was Scotty's vision. And well, me being me, I had in fact presented a copy of that to President Carter once. And uh, but I also remember it was uh, 
Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, who presented that book to President Gerald Ford in 1976. And what Scotty did was, um, you know, you know, I, I did a lot of research on speeches, etc. Scott worked his, uh, his uh, you know, he's got a magical pen with phrases and stuff. And um, Scotty took that original model from 1976, and I would argue double outpaced it. Those uh, photographs of the presidents and prime ministers, I don't think there exists anywhere else such an extensive photographic history of the top level of the bilateral relationship. I think that book, uh, which again, thanks to Scotty, I and uh, and the CABC, CABC, I think that's that book will be referenced for years to come mm-hmm. for students and scholars and practical politicians. Um, some of the speeches I worked on, I sure with uh, wish I had had with faith and goodwill on my desk to look up quotes. That's for sure. It was it was a fun project. It was a labor of love, and it and 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 it does go back, Chris, 150 years, um, right up to the present. So so we you know we did a second edition of it uh, because we didn't want to leave it at President Trump has just been reelected has just been elected. Uh, and Prime Minister Trudeau is figuring out how to navigate. When you think about everything that ha- happened in those years, we renegotiated the trade agreement. We had tariff wars. We had all sorts of things. We thought it was really important to update the book, and that's what the second edition is about, Chris. And and uh, it just was a joy to work with Art and Scott. And we negotiated. Like you can't put every single speech or every single photograph in a book. You have to choose, and kind of what you kick out and what you keep and whether you categorize it. Is this an example of friendship? Is this an example of tension? Is this an example of working together? Like, wh- what is it? Um, I think is, I think is interesting. The only other thing I'll say, Chris, and I'll turn it back to you is, you know, the, there are a very few non-presidents that show up in this president and prime ministerial book. Um, one of them is Nancy Pelosi, the speaker of the house, because without her, the new NAFTA, the USMCA, would not be the law today. And so it's an interesting little piece of history that Donald Trump's single legislative achievement, which is you know, threatening to tear up NAFTA and then getting a new and better agreement, Canada and Mexico negotiating it, was actually made possible in the end by Speaker Pelosi. So she, she makes a quick appearance. And then Vice President Kamala Harris, we also see in the book. Why? Because... Uh, She's current. She went to high school in Montreal, as a lot of people know, and um, we thought it was important to just mention there. There are some obscure Canada U.S. references that even you, Chris, as as a leading scholar, may may not have known. I know you know about uh, Vice President Harris going to high school in Montreal, but there might be a few old ones that uh, that are even a surprise to you. Well, it's all, I'm always learning something, and that's that's a great way to live life. I get up every morning looking forward to what I didn't know at breakfast that I will know at supper time. But uh, so one of those things, though, prompts the next question. When I think of Canada-US speeches, it's hard not to come back to the line from uh, President Kennedy's speech in Parliament, where he talks about history, uh, economics, uh, politics, making us neighbors and friends and partners. That's that's such a classic line, and I, I, I'm sort of paraphrasing it, but I wonder, you chose not to put that in actually either edition. You used a different speech. So 
were you trying to avoid, I don't want to say the cliches, but the best known lines and, and find some of the gems that people hadn't found? Or, or was there some reason that that speech didn't speak to you in the same way that some of the others did? I, just speaking from my end, um, we, that speech is so famous uh, properly. Uh, as it should be. It's just a beautiful piece of uh, writing and delivery. Uh, this, the Teddy, Teddy Sorensen JFK partnership, I don't think uh, we've ever seen it uh, since, you know. And, um, but uh, I, in lobbying for, for that, I, I wanted to put in um, uh, other speeches by then Senator Kennedy that were largely unknown, particularly to Canadians. Uh, so we have in there a speech at the University of New Brunswick. And um, uh, there, there were other ones I found that uh, were, um, I, I don't know, I just found it. We, we all know how the Kennedy story ends. We know how that the great speech in May 1961 in Ottawa. But I felt, uh, why don't we lay the groundworks for that and show the development in President Kennedy's thinking when he's a U.S. Senator? So that so that was my view on that. As an American, I, I was reading I'm reading through, and of course the presidents are familiar. Um, I wonder if you looking at this is there a prime minister who you thought really um, really made the best speech about the candidates' relationship, or or really struck you? And is there a U.S. president who, in some ways, is your the person who you think got it best? Maybe somebody we know, maybe somebody we don't like. Who would you rank among the best of our leaders talking about the other country, but in terms of being profound and thoughtful and insightful? Well, obviously, and uh, it's not just because I live in Kingston, Ontario, but uh, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's speech, August 18th, 1938, here in Kingston, uh, is one for the ages. And um, with the war clouds gathering in Europe and American public opinion, uh, very much uh, uh, not interested in getting entangled in a European war. Franklin Roosevelt comes to Kingston, Ontario, and sends a direct and clear message to the foreign offices in, in Rome and Berlin and defies his own public opinion, country's public opinion in doing so, which is pledging, pledging that if Canada is ever attacked uh, as part of the British Empire, the United States will defend Canada. And that had never, ever been said before. So that, that I would argue, is one of the foundational uh, speeches. And then on the prime minister's side, um, very, two very different men with two very different audiences at different times. But uh, we've only had two prime ministers speak to the U.S. Congress. And that would be Pierre Trudeau in 1977 and then Brian Mulroney in 1988. And um, uh, Mr. Mulroney's, uh, his direct, uh, I don't know if please the right word, but his presenting before the U.S. Congress, uh, the need for an acid rain treaty was quite powerful in that speech. And, you know, I think he said, what will, what will history say about two countries who can cooperate in space, but can't cooperate in their own continent to clean up acid rain? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And then there is the fascinating speech before Congress uh, delivered by Pierre Trudeau. 
And and here is, like I said, uh, up until that time, Pierre Trudeau is the first Canadian prime minister invited to stand at that august uh, podium. And almost his entire speech is about Canadian domestic issue, which is the sovereign, uh, the uh, election of the Parti Québécois. And it's a masterful, uh, a masterful uh, speech, both reassuring our American friends and neighbors that Canada shall too stand, um, shall stay together, but also reflecting that message back home too. So they're both, uh, both those speeches are incredible rhetorical, uh, 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 just masterpieces. And then the last one, and admittedly I'm, I'm biased uh, because I worked with Mr. Mulroney, but his, uh, his eulogy to George Herbert Walker Bush at the state funeral was just simply a remarkable. Nobody helped Brian Mulroney write that speech, I can tell you. That came from his heart. And uh, I think in the future, it too might be foundational in the sense that I would argue that in so many ways, George Herbert Walker Bush was in modern times, you know, one of the top two or whatever, most Canada friendly U.S. presidents, the friend of Canada in the American White House. And so uh, that's another speech that means a lot to me. You know, it really does say a lot when a foreign leader is invited to eulogize uh, another foreign leader. And Mr. Mulroney um, was invited three times. Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, George Herbert Walker Bush. I mean, Brian Mulroney looms large in the Canada-U.S. relationship for good reason. And um, that really comes across in the book. I'll tell you something else. And Ari, you got to talk about this a little bit because because uh, we like to razz you about this, but <laughs> there there are some great speeches given by a president who's who's remembered for other things. Uh, Richard Nixon yes. actually has some, you know, very interesting speeches, and I want you to talk about it. But I'll just let our listeners know. I can't remember if we talked about this on the last podcast, Chris. But when when we were building the, what was the new U.S. Embassy in Ottawa at the time, there's a there's a cupola on the fourth floor where with a dome, and there was the, the, these exposed granite walls, four walls. And Ambassador Giffen and I thought this would be a good place to carve something. You know, we're, we're used to Washington. You know the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, where you where you carve big things in granite, and so we came up with the idea of we'll we will carve quotes from U.S. presidents. Uh, there are four facing walls, so two Democrats, two Republicans, and the quote has to fit the space. It's a pretty small space, whatever. So I was researching quotes, um, and much to my chagrin, some of the best quotes on Canada-U.S. relations came from Richard Nixon. And I said, I'll be doggone if I'm going to carve his name in the doggone embassy. So we didn't. Um, we had Eisenhower and Reagan and Clinton and mm, I can't remember the other one. I'll have to, we'll have to get somebody to look at that for us. Um, and we actually showed Bill Clinton, uh, the President Clinton that we worked for, his quote in granite carved at the embassy when he dedicated it. And it was really uh, a wonderful moment. But Art, talk to us a little bit about, about Richard Nixon and, and why he looms large in your imagination and in your studies on Canada-U.S. relations. Well, uh, first oh, off... Kennedy, sorry, is, Kennedy was the other quote. The famous thing that we didn't yeah. leave we did put on the embassy. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing about Richard Nixon is uh, longevity. Uh, he first started... Uh, understanding bilateral issues when he's in the Congress. 
and then he's the senator. Then uh, eight years under um, Dwight Eisenhower, he's the vice president. And he's very much the traveling president, vice president. And over those years, he gets to know uh, quite well Louis Saint Laurent um, and um, Lester Pearson and John Diefenbaker. So Richard Nixon arrives in the White House. Um, oh, and he, during that period where he's been defeated by Kennedy and on the way to winning the 1968 Republican nomination, uh, Richard Nixon is frequently in Canada. Uh, and so by the time he becomes president, he needs no briefing book. Uh, he already knows the uh, general, uh, uh, you know, the needs of the relationship and the changes that need to be uh, made, uh, etc. But Canadians, and this drives me batty, okay? Canadians have created this myth that Richard Nixon and Pierre Trudeau hated each other so much that they couldn't get anything done. And it, it's just so easy to say that. Yes, uh, Richard Nixon called Pierre Trudeau an asshole on the Watergate tapes. Well, he probably said the same thing about the Pope, right? So it was just the way he spoke in private. Whereas I think the two of them, anything I've read, actually had an excellent working relationship. And the great centerpiece of that would be the Great Lakes uh, cleanup. Uh, yes, they both had political interest to do it, but it took, uh, it took, um, you know, two smart, well-briefed, uh, uh, believers in the Canada U S relationship to have accomplished that. And we're all paying the, uh, reaping the benefits. The other thing is his speech, Richard Nixon's speech to Canada's parliament in April, 1972. It's quite fascinating in the sense that there's no rhetorical BS in that speech. He describes the relationship the you know, the days of the rhetoric about the special relationship are over. We are two strong, mature countries and we share a continent and we're going to disagree. And the interesting thing about that speech that a lot of Canadians aren't aware of is that Pierre Trudeau's PMO had a great role in writing it. So and the last thing I'll say about Richard Nixon and Pierre Trudeau again, goes back to the Nixon taping system, is in the middle of Watergate, I think it's April 73, it's somewhere in that period, and Nixon has just had to fire his two most important uh, assistants, John Ehrlichman and Bob Halderman. Uh, his world is crashing in because of Watergate, and who picks up the phone and gives an unscheduled friendly call to buck up the president, but Pierre Trudeau. So I've never bought into the thing that Trudeau and Nixon um, hated each other. Now, they weren't each other's type of guy, that's for sure. I can't see them ever having a beer with each other, but uh, I think they accomplished a lot of good. And then one thing uh, Scotty and I made sure to put in the book is when Richard Nixon, President Nixon's visiting Ottawa, and uh, there's a private dinner, and there's a young, uh, a baby in the Trudeau family uh, who's only a few months old, and his name is Justin. And Richard Nixon leads a toast to the future Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. So, <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, Art, I want to ask you a little bit about if we can break the fourth wall in a way, like they say on television. You know, there's the speech, there's the audience, and yet there's also 
behind all of that, there's there's the public. And one of the speeches that that sticks with me, and and you've you've touched on it in the book, is is Truman's speech in which he praises Canada as an example of a place where the French and English and different groups can can coexist as a model for other countries. How important are speeches like the kind of speeches American presidents give in helping Canadians or maybe just helping Canadians to understand how they're seen in the world or maybe validating some of Canada's um, sort of hopes and dreams for how it can play a role in the world? I, I think sometimes uh, you know, when we're all coming up, if somebody who has been around kind of compliments us on a skill and we're sort of coming up in the world, we're teenagers, we sort of, we can actually grow in a direction of praise if if someone else can kind of see that in us. And I think some of the presidents, Truman comes to mind in particular, have have seen Canada and have praised it for things that have later become really part of Canada's global image, but maybe the Americans saw it first. I, I don't know if you think that's fair or maybe that's just reflecting what's already there, but uh, talk a little bit about how Canadians react when Americans talk about them and, and whether that inspires anything or, or is just seen as giving candidates due. Well, a sidebar to that Truman visit to Ottawa, one of my favorite things about that is only Canada's Mackenzie King would have done this is uh, Mackenzie King wanted his po- official portrait to be put up uh, in the parliament buildings. And he delayed and delayed and waited and made poor Harry Truman sit through the entire lengthy ceremony. So uh, so I'm surprised Harry Truman talked to us after that. Uh, that's for sure. But in terms of Truman, um, what's also important to know is, is uh, or, or to realize, is just how important Canada was uh, in the early dawn of the nuclear age. And Canada's Prime Minister, uh, Mackenzie King, uh, along with uh, Clement Attlee of uh, Britain and President Truman, were the only ones who really understood the full picture uh, of um, uh, of the early days of the, uh, uh, basically the nuclear arms race. So Mackenzie King would have been a very important figure in Harry Truman's world. But to go to your bigger point, um, particularly coming after the Second World War and the role that uh, proud role Canada played, to have the U.S. president, uh, particularly a Democrat, which Canadians seem to gravitate towards, and I can talk about that in a minute too. But uh, to have the president validate that, uh, yes, I agree with you, Chris. It's it's a very important uh, uh, stepping stone. And also, um, uh, yeah, he was highlighting things that uh, we later became part of our identity. I'm not saying Truman uh, created it or anything, but a speech like that. Another one, though he wasn't president, another important speech uh, that I've read a few times is General Eisenhower. And he's general. He's not a... uh, uh, not the president. When he comes to Ottawa and speaks, gives a lengthy speech about Canada's role uh, in the uh, Second World War, troops that he commanded, uh, that that's quite important. And then, let's be frank, there's the star power. I mean, I, I had the honor, I was a young reporter, of being on Parliament Hill the day uh, President Clinton came in 1995. And it was, uh, you know... It was it united right, left, center, separatist. <laughs> you know, it was a very exciting moment to have this bright and uh, young and youthful president 
praise our country in our very house of commons um it's it's always it was, good when elvis is in the building right art yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> well let, let me we're coming to the kind of the last uh segment here of the podcast and and let me i have one last question and maybe maybe chris does too and we'll wrap up my i want to pivot from some of the big policy speeches um and ask you about another section of the book which which i think was your inspiration because it says a lot about the canada u.s relationship and that is there's a section of, of the book where we say at play so we have at work you know, and at play. And we talk about presidents vacationing in Canada and prime ministers uh, spending downtime in the U.S. I wonder if you could give us a few little nuggets, um, Art, because I don't think people really realize the extent to which uh, through the years uh, our leaders have been going back and forth on their personal time. Well, the uh, first ever president that we can that we can uh, pinpoint ever visiting Canada and you have to remember that uh, for the first part of the relationship, well into the 20th century, the U.S. president would not could not leave the continental United States. So uh, then old Grover, uh, Chester Arthur came along. Wait a minute. I didn't know that. What was the reason for that, Art? I, I think it was it wasn't constitutional. It was just a tradition. The president okay. stayed at home. And then uh, obviously Woodrow Wilson breaks all that when off he goes to the Treaty of Versailles talks. Right? Yeah, okay. But in our case, Chester Arthur loved fishing. He even had a Canadian salmon fishing rec record uh, that stood for decades in the um, in the Maritimes. So he's fishing while he's president with a lone guard and the fish aren't biting. He's fishing up right around Kingston here on the American side and the fish aren't biting. So Chester Arthur says, screw tradition. I need fish. So he crossed into the Canadian waters. So that's uh, that's the fishing's quite a unifying thing. Um, uh, if I'm allowed to say when I worked in the Northwest Territories as a new, as a young newspaper guy, uh, George H.W. Bush was up there fishing. So I faxed him back then and I said, um, I don't have a freelance budget, but if you want to write a fishing column about fishing in Arctic Canada for my 800 circulation paper, I'll um, pay you with a baseball hat. So about uh, two weeks later, I was I lived at the newspaper. And my facts started going off and there was a five page fishing column full of typos. So, you know, like President Bush was a famous two finger typer. Right. And uh, I looked at it and I said, oh, my God. He did it. So I phoned the number on the fax and the voice answered saying something like Bush residence or something. And I said, hi, I'm Arthur Milnes. And then the voice said, oh, the Canadian uh, uh, editor in the Arctic. And so they put me right through to President Bush and we edited his piece and uh, off it went. And uh, that led to every Christmas he and I would exchange fishing lures and um and uh, flies and uh, yeah, it, Art, it takes some chutzpah to call President Bush and say, I need <laughs> to edit your piece. <laughs> and yeah, if, was... you, if you don't mind, sir, I'm going to fix a few typos. I think I think that takes some. Uh, some... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, that led to, like I said, letters back and forth for decades for, oh, 15 more years till he got sick. <clears throat> but also he had us over for coffee when my wife and I were in Houston once. And all we talked about was fishing. Never asked him a political question uh, at all. And then speaking of fishing, 
another big uh, presidential uh, a president who loved Canada for fishing was Herbert Hoover. And Hoover spent a lifetime visiting Canada many times. And then, of course, um, Pierre Trudeau loved to ski. And he would ski as a, uh, well, as a sitting prime minister. He skied in Colorado with former President Gerald Ford. It's quite a friendship between Pierre Trudeau and Ford that uh, Pierre Trudeau wrote once that um, of all the American presidents that he faced, he felt that Gerald Ford of Michigan was simply the greatest president for Canada that he experienced. Well, and, and didn't, and didn't President Ford, wasn't he the one he insisted that Canada be included in, yes. what was it, Chris? In the G7. G7? Yeah. yeah, that was, yeah. so tell, tell you what, friendship friendship matters. Friendship means something. Chris, oh, why, does, why do you ask well, us our, 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 our grand finale question? Well, yes, I mean, I can't help mention as a Michigander that uh, I'm a big Gerald Ford fan, so I'm not surprised that, that we both share this fondness for our friends across the lake. Um, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, Arthur, and this is putting you in a, a position you may eventually be in, but um, at the uh, Summit of the Americas just a few weeks ago, um, President Biden indicated that he was going to plan coming up to Canada to do an in-person visit. The first visit with Justin Trudeau was a virtual visit on video. So imagine that the president calls you up, not for fishing advice, but what would you tell him if he's going to Canada, if he's going to give a speech to the Canadian people on our relationship, etc.? Are there any tips, a couple things he should cover or maybe something that you think would be having read all of these speeches would be important for a U.S. president to deliver as part of their message? Not necessarily on the policy wonky side, but maybe on the on the message side. I, well, the most important thing would be to phone Scotty, Scott Reed or me. And uh, that's what Biden, <laughs> President Biden should do at first. The second yes. thing he should do is when he's in Toronto or wherever, go to chapters and then he should buy our book. So uh, once he's done that, he's ready. Um, he doesn't have to buy it. They've got it at the White House. He's featured prominently. There's some, there some glory pictures of, of President Biden in Canada. We're all good there, my friend. OK, OK. <laughs> One thing that, Amer and in fairness, American presidents have been very good at, at this uh, in their visits to Canada, uh, for the most part, is being humble. It's, uh, you know, right now it's the world's only superpower and, um, and uh, Canadians love the United States, but they, uh, I don't know, they, they, they like some humility uh, sometimes. And uh, th that would be one of the reasons they didn't, Generally, Canadians wouldn't have liked a person like President Trump. Uh, the other thing is to <clears throat> acknowledge friendship uh, contacts uh, with uh, your prime ministerial counterpart. And that would be my main. And also be hopeful. Bring us, bring us to a, a better place that you want to take us. Challenge, and when I say us, I mean Canadians and Americans. Take us to, you know, show us a path to a better uh, way forward. And another speech that uh, I think, though it's um, Quebec sovereignty is not a, the big issue it was, but it's never going away, is read President Bill Clinton's speech at Montebello. Yeah. I agree, Art. That was a that was oh. the big day. I remember oh. it well. And if I can just tell one quick story about that, because, you know, I was in the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa working working for Ambassador Giffen. And when Prime Minister Chrétien really wanted his good friend, Bill Clinton, to come and, and talk about federalism in Quebec, it was a big moment in, in the 
in the Quebec separatist movement. There have been several big moments in that movement, but you know, Prime Minister Chrétien really wanted Clinton to come, and you know, he sweetened the invitation with a promise of a golf game, uh, which in <laughs> fact they played golf. But I will tell you that the apparatus of the U.S. State Department and the White House. Um, agonized for weeks and weeks and weeks over every single word that would go into that speech. And what happened was uh, the speech was prepared, as is always the case. It was in the briefing book. Uh, Ambassador Giffen had worked a lot on it to make sure everybody's sensitized to the Canadian views on federalism and, and how important this was to Cretan. So, so they're in the, they ride the helicopter from Ottawa to uh, Quebec they're in the big car. They're heading up to Montebello. Ambassador Giffen is thinking, okay, now's my moment. I'm going to brief the president on what he needs to say and whatever. He's going to ask me questions. President leans back in the beast, uh, in the in the uh, vehicle there, the official vehicle, and he goes to sleep. He catches <laughs> shut eye. And so, so Giffen is sitting there going, okay, what do I do? Um, they arrive. <laughs> Clinton wakes up and opens the binder and Giffen kind of sits up straight. He's ready to, you know, impart some wisdom on all of the rationale behind this very important speech. Clinton opens the binder, rips out the first two pages, which are the ones that where it says, I'd like to thank the mayor. I'd like to thank the whatever, the you know, just the local acknowledgments. He rips out the two pages, puts those in his pocket, gives the binder to Giffen, and off he goes. And so that <laughs> incredible speech in Montebello that was delivered was completely, I mean, turns out Bill Clinton has basically a photographic memory. So he had read the speech, he had thought about it, uh, thought about it a lot, but he delivered that after the first, I'd like to thank the mayor part, just uh, extemporaneously. And so when you read the speech as delivered in, in our book, In Faith and Goodwill, it's even more interesting. And he changed U.S. policy that day on what does federalism mean and what is our stance toward Quebec. Like everybody in the bureaucracy of foreign policy thought, okay, well, it's important to just, you know, reiterate strong United Canada, Quebec within Canada. And Clinton took it to a whole new level, um, which when you think about China and Taiwan today, or you think about some other places in the world, it really is quite remarkable. So anyway, Art, I'm glad you raised that speech and and. And I'm really grateful to you, my friend, for joining us today. It's um, oh. it's, it's amazing to talk to you, uh, and and it's and amazing I'm, to see you. Yeah, you too. You too. It's nice. It's nice that we all learned how to do Zoom during COVID, right? Like that's. I never knew how to. Zoom has existed for a while, and video calls have existed for a while, and then they used to be glitchy, and now it feels like magic. So great. Can to see I you. end with my Vermont story? Oh, you must. Yes. So Scotty's from Vermont, and Vermont. I married a guy I mean, from Vermont. Yeah. Okay. Close and, enough. And uh, Chester Arthur was born in Vermont, and that he uh, was the subject of a dirty tricks campaign when he was James Garfield's running mate, and they said, "He gads, he was Canadian." So Chester Arthur is my favorite. Um, my favorite U.S. president, and he, like I said earlier, he had a salmon fishing record. So. If there's one guy I could go back in history and hang out with on Canada, U.S., it'd be uh, Chester Arthur. How's that? Well, Art, it, it feels like we have had the opportunity to uh, hang out in history with you. I want to thank you for, for coming on our podcast and, 
and really sharing some of the highlights of the book and encourage, because I know Scotty wouldn't feel comfortable saying this, I want to encourage all our listeners to, uh, to check this book out. It is, there are two editions. It's worth looking at both because they aren't identical and there's some new nuances and some exciting new stuff in the second edition, which is newly out. It's called With Faith and Goodwill. Both of them have the same title, slightly different subtitle, and it's Scotty Green with Scott Reed and you, Art Milnes, who brought this to us. I really want to thank you for all of that. And uh, last word to you, Scotty. Oh, well, thanks for the plug, my friend. And thank you, Art Milnes. And maybe maybe we'll get the band together one more time. And here, here. We'll get Scott Reed on the call with us and, and uh, we can yuck it up because it's, I have to tell you, it is a lot of fun to work with the two of you. And uh, I'm just grateful, grateful um, for your friendship and your insights and your dedication to the Canada-US relationship. I don't, you know, I don't know what we would do without you, Art. Oh, stop it. I, but what I will say, my father told me growing up that one of the best things about being Canadian is that you get to live next door to such a dynamic, friendly and important people and in my 56 years i have never had any experience with the united states uh and my dealings and holidays there that i've never had an experience that tells me my dad wasn't right so i was thrilled to work with scotty on this book art i feel the same way i feel like i'm next to a, a dynamic and exciting podcast partner uh, in scotty and it makes my life better oh my gosh we better end this now y'all <laughs> all right Well, there you go, Chris, the world famous Art Milnes from Kingston, Ontario, uh, my collaborator on With Faith and Goodwill. I, I love talking to him. I love hearing the stories. I love hearing about how much he loves Jimmy Carter. I just like, what a, what a fun conversation. It really was. And I know you've had a chance to work with Art. This was my first real chance to, to interact with him. And I know a lot of people who are history buffs. Um, and, you know, they go and they get a degree in history, but he really seems to have taken that love of history and connected it professionally to his interest in speeches, to his interest in leadership. And the, it's just fascinating to listen to him, pull all those threads together. And in particular, he has an appreciation of both sides of our Canusa Street world. He's interested in the Canadians for sure, but you can tell he's interested in the United States. He loves the U.S. politics almost as much as he loves and lives Canadian politics. It, it yeah, was just it, amazing. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's in vogue in certain circles in the U.S. and Canada. In the U.S. to be an America first or an isolationist, we don't need the world, we don't want to be police to the world, whatever. And in Canada, it's, it's in vogue in certain circles to be a little bit anti-American or a lot anti-American. And, you know, Art is the antidote to that. He is just an unabashed champion, just like you and I are for this relationship. And I, I, I love, I love to hear it. I love to see it. And, uh, and it came through. I thought loud and clear on today's podcast. Yeah, I agree. He was really. We should get him his own house on Canusa Street. Maybe just a. <laughs> he, he belongs on the street with us for sure. Or at least a soapbox to, to let yeah. him stand on. There you <laughs> the go. Speaker's corner. Speaker's Corner on Canusa Street. We're, we're, we're deteriorating here. Anyway, always great to see you. Always great to see you too. Scotty. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.